0: Hey, what's up today? We're going to be talking about climactic songwriting a huge error that I think most bands are making in the modern metal scene And why modern metal does not feel as impactful as older stuff We're also going to be covering the news story of black Dahlia murder Making a comeback after their singer Trevor passed away a few months ago We're also going to be answering some questions and we are going to be covering our featured artist for the week Become a member of the Burn This World podcast. Head over to burnthisworld.com. Click on the become a member button at the top. And for three bucks a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to support the podcast, everything that we're doing, and also get some exclusive content from the podcast and my band, The Browning. Again, only three bucks a month. Head over to burnthisworld.com and become a member. Appreciate you being here. I'm Johnny McBee. You're listening to the Burn This World podcast. So, I'm sure just like me, you have had plenty of moments when listening to modern metal where you're just like, man, this stuff just really doesn't hit like it used to. It doesn't get you all excited whenever you're listening to it like it did when you were younger. And maybe that's because we're all old and bitter and burnt up or whatever now, but I really think it's due to songwriting because there are moments that I hear something and it just gets me excited. It makes me be like, dang, that was sick. Doesn't happen often. And it particularly doesn't necessarily happen when I'm listening to any of the large bands. Currently, there's a couple people that still do a couple artists that still do kind of catch me off guard and make me surprised and excited by something. But I guess that there's been a shift really um, in songwriting and what the point of writing metal or metalcore is. And I think that it's doing a huge disservice to what it is in the first place, at least what my perception of it is. And I think it really comes from there being a load of massive success from a lot of metalcore bands, right? Like whenever you see some bands like Ask in Alexandria or Bring Me the Horizon, or, you know, even say Motionless and White, go to a next level of, like, being huge, right? You see that, and you're like, well, what songs got them there, really? And you're wondering, like, how do you keep getting to that level? And how can you get to that level so it makes you want to have that commercial success? And so it it it's like this trickle-down effect where the large bands that get super, super popular like that, make all the smaller bands want to have that as well. But I think that there is a gradual thing that has to happen for a band to really be able to have that. And I think you have to have an edge to get people's attention if you're a smaller band. Like, yes, Motionless and White can write like these modern ballads and just absolutely slay. But Motionless and White has the financial backing and the touring capacity to be on these mass scale stuff, right? They're they've toured with freaking Rob Zombie, you know? They have played the biggest festivals in the world where they're playing to these mainstream crowds. You as a small starting off artist do not have the ability to even touch those people really. And that like not saying that in a sense of like you have no chance, but you have to have something that really uh, get you blowing up in the underground first. Like Motionless and White, they were super heavy. You know, I, okay, I wouldn't say super heavy, but they had a lot of really heavy stuff, a lot of really metal stuff, you know, stuff that sounded like bleeding through. And, you know, they had some really thrashy stuff. Now Motionless and White is a band that always had that um, more mainstream potential because there was so much good singing in it as well. But... I feel like a lot of smaller bands are just going straight to that realm uh, in the metalcore world, where they can write these, where they're writing these rock song structures that are super predictable, but they don't aren't reaching the right people for it to really make sense to be writing music like that, unless if they really like it. But the problem is, a lot of them don't. <laughs> a lot of these smaller bands are actually doing because like, no, this is the right career path. We have to be writing stuff like this because it's the it's the right move, right? Um, no. In my opinion, it is not. Um I I think that you have to garner this underground fan base and slowly rotate once you start reaching those bigger audiences. You know? And I use Motionless White as an example because I think that they're also a band that does it properly. They do have those big ballots. They do have those big kind of uh you know active rock songs. But they still have an edge to them. Chris has one of the best screaming voices in the metal scene in general. Um, and his singing voice has just gotten better and better and better over the years as well. But they're still doing something very unique. Like very, very unique. They have a lot of synths. They have a really good image that's unique to uh, pretty much anyone else in the scene. And they're doing something that is different still. right? So they do have a niche that they're apply- that they're not applying to. That they're like, um, you know, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. They have a niche that they are in, right? Whereas, if you are essentially writing this 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 metalcore that is in rock structures that catches nobody off guard, you do not have an impact on a on any market really. <laughs> you're too heavy for the mainstream, and you're too uh, predictable for metal, right? And so, impactful songwriting. I think really comes from a lot of different like ways and impactful but also particularly for my preference climactic Long gone are the days of the really big, long, predictable buildups, I think. <laughs> like, there was a moment there where everyone, the song stops, and then there's a snare build. Ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. You know, that sort of crap. And they do that, and then the double kick comes in, and then everything stops, vocalist screams, break down. Like, that was cool when it first started, right? But it became so predictable that even though it was a build up to a climax... It stopped being climactic because everyone was doing it. It was too predictable, right? Like a climax is something that's supposed to, yes, peak and really just be this big moment, this big release of tension. But if you're expecting every single moment of it and you know exactly before you never heard the song, you know exactly what's about to happen, then it's no longer really climactic. And I don't mean to talk about this as if I know better than anyone else or I write more impactful, better music than anybody else in the metal scene, but I do think that I put more of an emphasis on being climactic than a lot of people do. And I also think I put a lot more energy into making unique climaxes um, in my music. And so for this, I'm going to use an example of my own song. And I'll use my most popular song. It's called Carnage. Uh, for anyone that hasn't heard it, uh, it's called Carnage It's on the album Geist by the Browning and just by watching the reaction videos to the song, you can see this this climax and what it does to people. So real quick, let's go over some of the structure in the middle of carnage that really transitions into this climax. We're going from the verse which is kind of this like groovy kind of breakdown thing with a lot of vocals and then we transition into a buildup, right that buildup, has a big vocal and has this perpetual build underneath it that's just building energy with swells and all this sort of stuff and it hits into a techno part right and in your mind as a listener you think that this is the climax right you think that this hit is the climax but this is actually still part of the build right so on the reaction channels when you watch this song people are pumped they're like oh dang that was sick i didn't expect it to hit into a big techno part right and then halfway through the techno part It does a smooth, quick flip into a rap part. And then they think that's the climax, right? Then they're like, oh, crap, I didn't see that coming. That's the climax. Like, this is sick. This is, it hit. It's a good, you know, it's a good rap part. And, uh, you know, it came to its fruition. But still underlying in that rap part, the vocals themselves are building up even more. And then the electronics underneath are building up even more. The tension, the swells, everything is building up even more. And then the rap part, the vocals, then transition to the actual climax, which is whenever the metal hits in after both a techno part and after a rap part, then it climaxes into the breakdown, right? With really fast double bass. It's not even really, it's a breakdown pattern on guitar, but the double bass is digga 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 digga, you know? And so this part, from a lot of people's eyes and from the listener who's never heard the song, they think the song has peaked Uh, twice before it actually did. Like we're still building whenever they think the climax hit. And so each one's kept them off guard and each one is getting even more impactful, right? And now I'm not saying people need to start throwing in techno into their songs and throwing in rap into their songs, but doing things that are surprising and uh, always building tension and then always having a big release of tension is something that I think more people need to focus on. Now, I have an advantage when writing Browning music because there's so many genres that I can throw in to really keep people off guard, and there's a lot of different styles of climaxes I can do. I I can have a techno climax. I can have a rap climax. I can have a breakdown climax. I can have a chorus climax. I can have all this stuff. But I feel like most bands right now are doing... There's one of two climaxes. Bands currently have two climaxes. And I feel like I'm saying climax a lot. And I might be making some people really uncomfortable, but whatever. Uh, bands have two climaxes. They have a chorus that isn't really a climax because a lot of times they tease the chorus at the beginning of the song. The song starts with uh, a tease of like the, co- the chorus pattern with no vocals, or maybe the chorus vocals play at the very beginning and then they go into the verse. But then the, the chorus happens like freaking three, four times. And so the chorus loses its impact right? And even then, a lot of the choruses, I think, aren't as huge as choruses could be, like if you listen to a lot of older stuff. And so, to me, a lot of bands are putting too much focus on these freaking choruses because they're trying to think of radio rock, and they're trying to think of commercial success. And what do you need in commercial commercial success? A catchy hook, a catchy chorus. And yes, I think that you do need catchy choruses, but not to the extent that every single one of them sounds like they do right now. And they really do lose their impact. Um, And in metal, there is way more climactic of things you can do, right? And so I think in metal, there's a lot more things that can hook the listener in beyond a chorus. And the second climax that people are doing now is the breakdown after the second chorus. It's every freaking time. You could turn on any song from a big band that you've listened to recently, right? And this is likely the structure. You get a chorus, tease at the beginning. Then you get a verse, which is either a soft verse or a fast verse. One of those two. Then you get a small little pre-chorus, which is about two measures of something that builds into the chorus. Then you get the chorus hit. Then you get a verse which is likely back into the same verse, or like a semi-breakdown verse. Then you get a chorus that doesn't have a pre-chorus. You go straight into the chorus this time. Then, you do a build-up into a breakdown. Likely, it gets soft for a minute, and then you have a big vocal build, a big vocal scream, and then a quote-unquote breakdown. I'm doing quote-unquote because a lot of times it's not even like a typical breakdown. It's a lot of times this like rock riff, like a heavier version of the of the chorus or verse riff, right? Then you have a soft transition back into the chorus and then you end the song. Sometimes you'll have a breakdown outro or something, right? And so that's it. That is 90% of songs that get released now. And I, I really can't get myself to listen to much. I'll listen to like 30 seconds of a song And if it hits this structure, I stop listening to it. (laughs) Like, I mean, yeah, there's sometimes I'll go through, you know, if it's a, if it's a bigger band, I'll go through, I'll listen to the song, but man, I just can't stand this because it does get rid of all of the impact and there's, there's nothing surprising about it. Like really go listen to any, any song right now from a bigger band. And it is that structure. And, um, I, to, to be honest, I don't have the answer for bands of what can you do, like, well, what am I supposed to do besides a big chorus and a breakdown after the second one? Well, I don't freaking know. That's not my thing to answer. <laughs> but I do know that people need to start being more creative and putting a focus on this. If bands would even just focus on making their songs more climactic and more surprising, then there wouldn't even be a question. People would just figure it out. They would they would come up with unique ways, like I did in Carnage. Or in a lot of these songs that I've done, like same thing happened in, in the first song on End of Existence. Like the middle part, there's like, it had the same thing. It, had, it kept building. And when you thought it, it was hitting, it was actually still building. Like I do build on build. And then I hit the final climax, like three or four builds later. Like, and so I'm like climaxing on climaxes. That sounds awful, but that's what I'm doing. So here's my suggestion. If you're in a band and you're trying to write music that's going to be impactful to people, then just put an emphasis on it. Don't worry about the chorus. Maybe save the chorus for last. (laughs) Maybe figure out a way that you can come up with, how is this song going to catch people by surprise? Rather than, how am I going to write the catchiest chorus? Because I promise you, You can write the catchiest chorus on the planet Earth right now and no one's going to care. But if you write the heaviest, most exciting part, the metal community will care. Okay? That's the difference. If you're in a small band and you're trying to make an impact, you need to write music that is surprising and that is really taking people off guard. No one cares how catchy your chorus is. I promise you. Because for someone to even care about listening to you playing that chorus like four times in your song, you have to keep them listening and keep them wanting to listen to this song again. And it is the climaxes that do that for you. All right, let's get into the news for the day. So I'm sure as most of you know, the vocalist from the Black Dolly Murder, Trevor, passed away a couple months ago and... I guess there was a big debate on whether the band would continue, but um, I'm sure that any member of any band that passes away would want their band to continue. And I think the band members know that, but with a band as legendary as the black Dahlia murder is, I think it's very important for them to do this properly. And I think the way they are doing it is perfect. Um, It's a hard situation to handle, but, as I said, the the vocalist, Trevor, would definitely want the band to continue on without him, and the guitarist is stepping up and doing the vocals for the band. I know he did backup vocals live, and so he's capable, um, but he is stepping up and being the full-on front man, and they got their original guitarist, or Ryan Knight, the dude that played guitar for over a decade for the band, back in. And so... Uh, October twenty eighth, they're, they're doing a tribute in Detroit for Trevor. Um, uh, hopefully, they do something similar like what Suicide Silence did with Mitch, where they do the tribute, they bring up a bunch of other vocalists and all this stuff. Or maybe they might not do that because it might seem like they're, you know, just doing the same thing Suicide Silence did. But I thought that was really cool. And also, you know, Trevor has a lot of fans and friends in the scene people that would love to show their tribute and their appreciation for everything that Trevor contributed. And so I just think that this is really important. They do have a legacy. They're a legacy band in our genre. And so it's really important for them to continue and having the original guitarists do vocals and having the original guitars come back, it just feels like it feels like absolutely the perfect move in this situation. And I'm sure that Trevor would think it was awesome. Um, and so I do see it as a really good tribute and I see it as a really good response to such a bad situation. I mean, this is these guys livelihoods. I'm sure all of them have some side hustle, but you can't expect a band to some, these guys have been doing it for a long time, 15, 16 years, probably more. Um, and so this is their livelihood. And also their passion. Obviously, they have a love for it. No one lasts that long without having like a deep love and passion for this. And so, I just really respect what they're doing. And um, you know, I I'm sure this is extremely difficult, especially because a few of these people have been in the band for a long time. So they're they're like brothers essentially. And I'm sure it's going to be very emotional for the guitarist to get up there and do those vocals. Like he said in his interview. He said that, uh, you know, he's seen Trevor perform more than anyone else on the planet. He's been torn with the dude forever. And so, um, I don't know if he's going to try to mimic it. He said that he can't match Trevor's vocals, but he can at least, uh, try to have that same energy. And he had good energy on stage too. So the Black Dolly murder is not going anywhere. If anything, this might light a fire under them. Um, And a lot of people are going to turn up and show a lot of the support. And I'm sure it's going to be very emotional. I couldn't imagine getting up and performing those vocals that, you know, one of your best friends did for so long and not being emotional about it. So big, big respect there. So let's get into answering your questions. All right. Got some questions that were submitted to me. If you have some questions that you want to ask, send them to me over on Instagram. I'll Mark them down, you know get them answered. And so send them up to me over on Instagram. That's Instagram.com slash Johnny McBee. And so first question, Callen Eden asked, what does your guitar rig look like and consist of? I probably should have had John respond to this, but I am just now thinking about that. Uh, but I can tell you what John has and I'll also go through what I have too. Uh, John. He plays on Solar Guitars That are super sick guitars. You have to check out Solar guitars. They're affordable too for how nice they are. I played his, super solid. Um, He also plays on a quad cortex. And so most bands nowadays aren't really using cabs. You just do an amp simulator that goes to the PA. That's if you're playing venues big enough that you don't need a cab. Uh, Because if you're playing a small venue, you need a guitar cab. Um, But. Just doing an amp sim straight into the PA if you're at a big enough venue is totally fine. And so he does the quad cortex uh, rather than like Kemper or anything like that. The quad cortex is cool. You can just download uh, tones straight to it that other people have built. And they're actually working on uh, making it to where you can import uh, your same exact tones from the computer to your other. So they they do the neural DSP uh, guitar simulators on like computer which you can have like the Gojira tone and all these tones from all these big artists. They're working on being able to put those onto the actual physical quad cortex as well. That's what he used on tour with us. And it was really nice. Um, and so I actually kind of want to get a quad cortex because people use it for bass and also people use it for vocal production as well. Live. So the quad cortex, super nice uh, put together by neural DSP, super sick thing. I, I really want one for myself as well. And so he plays Solar Guitars with the Quad Cortex, and he uses the Shure Wireless, which I have one as well. It's um, Shure makes one that's a tuner and a wireless pack at the the same time. Uh, For me personally, I have a Carvin guitar that I bought for my old guitar player like freaking six years ago, and I cannot get off of it. It's actually longer six, maybe like seven, eight years ago. It's a a Carvin seven-string neck through um, that is just... Baritone, it's thick. I I can't play any other guitar that's comparable. It's just and Carvin doesn't even exist anymore. They technically it's Kiesel now, but the Carvins just a little bit different. And this one is just it's so nice. I really can't get off of it. I've recorded the past three Browning records on it. It's uh it's way too nice. It's like flat black all the way, and then it has a really nice like um like a light pine, uh, fretboard. It's sick. I I can't imagine replacing it, but I do want to get a Carvin because they have one that's very similar. And I played John's and it's it's nice. And for guitar tone, like the past three records, dude, I'm still using Line Six Pod Farm. I just can't get off of it off of Pod Farm. The tone is just nice, and maybe it's just because I'm so used to it because I've used the same tone on Pod Farm forever. And I just I can't get myself to hear anything else and think it sounds as good. So I'm still on Pod Farm. On my, um, on my other computer, I do have the Neural DSP stuff with uh, the Gojira tones, and those are the nicest tones I've heard. So I'm really into that Neural DSP, the Architect Archetype is the name of it. And so I've been really into those. The next question comes in from Aaron Shermerhorn, and that is, do I prefer push pits or hardcore dancing? Um, I just straight up have to say push bits, uh, back whenever hardcore dancing was like the main way people got into music at shows, there was just always so many fights and stuff. And I mean, there's still genres that have a lot of hardcore dancing and everything, but I am very happy that, um, push bits are the main thing. It's weird how it kind of fizzled out. Um, and maybe people just got lazy. Maybe people got tired of getting in fights or getting punched or getting hit to where it's like, okay, I'll just go shove someone and that that's much better. Uh, really, there's way less fights now like we did a tour that was us wins a plague and static X and you want to talk about clashing fan bases that was the epitome of it like us and wins a plague at the time had a lot of like hardcore dancers and then static X. Obviously, had zero hardcore dancers, and a lot of people that listen to stuff like that don't really understand it. Um, and so, like, they see someone swinging and then they get punched, you know, the whole time they watch someone swinging, they're like, If they hit me, it's freaking going down, and it really did every night, like, multiple times, non stop fights. Um, and so, I'm glad it's gone more towards push pits, you know, people can do what they want and everything, but there is a time and place for that. Like, if I see someone at our show which I'm a we're a techno metal band and someone's crowd killing people. I'm like, "Please stop." <laughs> like I would rather the the people be able to just stand there and watch and not get hit. That'd be my preference. I don't want anyone getting hurt at my shows, but I do want people to have some energy. So push bits a happy medium there. <laughs> so definitely 100% push bits. Going into the last question. Someone asked, "What is my favorite Browning song. And this question came in from uh, Mitchell Coates. So what is my favorite Browning song? And I saved this one for last because it is kind of relevant for what we were talking about before um, about the climaxes. The key to this episode is climaxes. And I just I don't think I've ever said climax as much as I have this episode. So now that you're thinking about climaxing the whole, this whole episode. I'm just going to keep talking about it. Um, I really love, personally, the more melodic Browning songs, the ones that have some singing in them. Um, and But I also do love the ones that just have these like perfectly built parts. And I will say right now, my favorite Browning song and probably the best written song I've ever had. It's two of them, actually, and they're both on end of existence. Antisendency and Prophecy. Those two songs, the structures are insane. Um, like, yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but you asked what my favorite stuff is, and so I'm going to tell you why. Um, the song structure on those are just completely unique. There's n- no other song that you can play that has a structure that matches either of those two. They're completely unique, and the builds and the just everything about it is just so well written. Um, my favorite part and this, this part climax is so hard, super hard climax, anti the end after the like slow chorus at the end, like after the, the bridge, there's the big slow chorus that you feel like is the climax, right? And then it goes into this fast version of the verse riff. And then it goes into a breakdown that plays the verse rift. It's like doing a breakdown of that. Then it slows down into a breakdown, an even slower breakdown of that that's done in a different way. Like it's just the ending of that song is slow so flawless and catches people off so much. Like whenever we played it live, it was like my favorite thing to hear. When that last breakdown hit, the crowd would literally go, like start yelling. Like, that's such a good feeling. And we have video of it too. of it was every single night when that breakdown hit at the very end, the crowd was literally like, oh, oh, like crap. Like, that is the epitome of a climax. And I'm not joking. It was every night people would freaking start cheering when we hit that last breakdown because it comes out of nowhere. And they thought that the big breakdown already happened, but it didn't. That, the ending of that song is a perfect example of what I'm talking about as, as far as creative, impactful, climactic songwriting. Go listen to the end of anti-ascendancy. And by the end, I mean like the last like minute and a half. <laughs> Go listen to it. It's freaking crazy. And Prophecy as well. I think that Prophecy just overall has everything. And it has a really big, long build with a soft part. Into, um, instead of dropping the tempo for the big breakdown... It goes up in tempo. And then it drops. And then it drops. And then it drops. It's just like (laughs) the that the this is the type of songwriting I'm talking about that really catches people off guard and really just keeps people on their toes while listening to a record. And it it just gets me freaking pumped. Like I love the music that I write. And I think that's very important that artists have that. Um, you know, I don't I don't necessarily agree that bands like sell out when they start writing softer stuff, because really people do just start listening to softer stuff typically. But um, there is a certain aspect to we're going to follow a formula. Following a formula is selling out. Playing softer music is not. But if you're just like, I'm going to play this formula so that I can have success, to me that's selling out. But... If it's your career and you're providing for your family or bettering for yourself, do it. It's just a the job then. But nonetheless, uh, Antisendency and Prophecy are some of the best written songs I've ever done by far. And I think that especially the end of Antisendency, top notch. If you have any questions, send them to me over on Instagram, instagram.com slash McBee. Let's get into the featured band for the week. The featured artist for this week is Gary Newman. Now, this is this is a bit of a weird on firm sure, sure for a lot of people because uh, you'd expect me to cover like a smaller metalcore band, but this freaking blew my mind, and I have to talk about it. Gary Newman, a big artist from like the '70s, right? Um, go listen to the, his top song. It's called "Cars." You've heard the song. You've heard that synth, uh, really popular song from them, and it was. It's like an electronic, kind of like, I don't want to say synthwave, but, you know, synthy electronic music from the 70s. This dude, in the year 2022, you're talking freaking 50 years later, this dude is putting out modern electronic music that is sick. Like, I just randomly saw a post on Facebook from someone called Gary Newman that said, the shows have been selling out and it's been awesome. I was like, who's this and how, why are they selling out shows? I click on it. I see the stuff. I Google it. I YouTube it. I see the music video from the seventies. I'm like, what? Oh, I've heard this song. And then I listen to the new stuff and it just absolutely blew my mind. So this dude, Gary Newman, this dude, from what I, I think I looked, he was like 60 something years old, right? Since the seventies, this dude has been creating modern electronic music and he is modernized perfectly. It's not like he's playing seventies music in 2022. He is playing very modern, very up to date electronic music and his voice is sick on this stuff. Um, if you listen to the song, my name is ruin. Like man, that is the music I want to write <laughs> like straight up. I want to be writing music. That sounds like my name is ruin by Gary Newman. And, He's out there touring. Dude's freaking 60 something years old. I think he might be getting near 70. And that is just so sick to see. He's absolutely killing it. And I just love seeing career musicians that are pushing the envelope. This dude is nowhere near freaking washed up or burnt out. Um, and, but he's like kind of under the radar, I think, because he's just been playing electronic music. Like, you know, he's not like a big rock star out there, but he is still selling out shows. He's had a lifelong career in music. I think there's been ups and downs. He like I saw an interview where he said, Oh, I didn't think that my coming back to relevancy would be 40 years later. You know, he didn't think it would take 40 years or something. So maybe there was something where he kind of fell off for a minute and he, you know, whatever, revitalized his career. But nonetheless, it's just it's really sick to see. And I've been listening to his music. It's literally the music I want to write. His album is called Intruder, the newest one, 2021 and the song My Name is a Ruin, and the song Intruder, and all of it. It's its perfect music. And so Gary Newman is my featured artist. You guys need to go listen to it. If you if you really like electronic music or the Browning, go listen to it. This is the type of music I want to write. I appreciate you guys being here listening to another episode of the Burn This World podcast. Again, for only $3, you can support the podcast. Head over to burnthisworld.com, click become a member, and then for $3 a month, you can get the exclusive content and be supporting me here doing this podcast full time. So we'll see you guys in the next one. Have a good one. And bye.